after the people received the word, after they were baptized, and after they were added unto the church, that's added to the 120 that were there in chapter number 1, the Bible tells us, kind of summarizes what these people were involved in. In verse 42, the Bible says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, we are approaching our text by asking ourselves this question that I asked a few weeks ago, and that is this, are we like the believers described in the book of Acts? Or we could also ask this question, does this church look like the church in Acts chapter number 2? And this question brings us to an important examination of our own lives with respect to the local church. Now we ask a number of questions. Why did they come together? Or what did they come together to do? For what purpose did they join this visible and local body of believers? What was the purpose? What did they do? Now, there is a number of priorities that are named in verse number 42. And I would like to mention them all and then work our way through them so that we understand how to properly answer this question. What is the church for? What, why does the church exist? In verse number 42, uh, it identifies us with a number of those priorities. The first one in verse 42 is that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They also continued in fellowship. Thirdly, they continued in breaking of bread. And then number four, they continued in prayers. So here we have for us a description of the activities of the first century church. I was reading after one preacher who was addressing this passage and he says, what did they come together for? What is the Christian church for? What does she do? What does she provide? Do Christian people come together for socials? For dances, raffles, dramatic performances, lectures on politics, literature, and sociology? There was nothing like that in the early church. You can get all of that in the world, and you can get it much better there. The Christian church makes a fool of herself when she attempts these things. You see, we must get a clear picture, and that is why we study the Scriptures. We are a Bible-believing church, and we get here a clear picture of the New Testament church and what the church looks like. We identify the first on this list as continuing, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. You know, Paul, as he wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, who was a pastor, he said this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. He says, These things write I unto you, hoping to come unto thee shortly, but, I, but if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. And then he says this, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. That's how Paul described the church. Uh, he declared the church to be the pillar and ground of the truth. The pillar, if you would, speaks of a column. We would be familiar with that. By which a building is supported and is able to stand. The church is the institution that holds the truth up. 
The house of God crumbles without the truth. He says that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. The idea of the ground speaks of the basis or if you would the foundation. So the foundation of the church, notice, is the truth. The church cannot stand, cannot be stable without the truth. And that's what the, truth, the church ought to represent. Not just in the first century, but also in the 21st century. And the first thing we identify in this church in Acts chapter number 2, after they were saved, baptized, and added to the church, what were they doing? They were continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Therefore, we understand the importance of doctrine. And so I would like to preach a message entitled, Continuing Steadfastly, in doctrine. Continuing steadfastly in doctrine. I want to look here because this is so important that it is mentioned first. It is repeated all throughout the epistles the importance of doctrine of teaching. Over 130 times the word teaching or doctrine or the body of faith and truth that was once delivered unto the saints has to be contended for. And so the doctrine is really permeated, is permeated throughout the New Testament. And there's a clear emphasis on doctrine. And here the Bible tells us here, as we discover this New Testament church, it tells us that the first thing they were doing, the first thing on the list, is that they were continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And so I want to examine here the Apostles' Doctrine and them continuing in it. Number one, I want us to notice the priority given to the Apostles' Doctrine. The priority that is given to the Apostles' Doctrine. You see, this continuation in the Apostles' Doctrine is mentioned first. After these uh, people here that were remembered, those were the ones who Peter had said they had shouted, crucify him, they had crucified by wicked hands, some of these very people turned in faith to Christ, they received the word, they were baptized, they were added to uh, the church, and the first thing they were involved in doing is continued in the apostles' doctrine. You see, it is noteworthy for us to see that doctrine is mentioned first. Now, I believe that is of great significance. You see, doctrine must always and always does precede practice. You know, we live in a world now, and particularly even in the church environment, where people say, you know what, I don't think we need to concern ourselves with doctrine. Pat Boone even said, doctrine divides. Well, yeah, it does. A doctrine does divide, and it should divide, but there's this idea today that let's not talk about doctrine anymore, but we have to understand, and people say, well, let's talk about our lives, let's talk about living, and they do not understand that doctrine and practice are intermingled and they cannot be disconnected. You see, doctrine must always precede practice. Practice is always dictated by doctrine. If we follow a man... And look at the behavioral pattern in his life. I will show you what that man believes. You see, such is the pattern of, by the way, most of the New Testament epistles. I want you to go with me as we study the epistle to the church at Rome. In the book of Romans, we've identified really the entire epistle of Romans into two natural divisions. The first is chapter 1 all the way through chapter number 11. And that is doctrinal. 
And then if we come to notice in Romans chapter number 12, there is a transition in Romans 12 verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And so here Paul transitioned from Romans chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11. He's talked about doctrine, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the gospel, the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit of God. All those things have been established. And now he comes to Romans chapter number 12 and he says, Therefore, by the mercies of God, now that we understand all the doctrine, this is how we ought to live our lives. We ought to have our bodies presented as a living sacrifice. Doctrine precedes practice. It is the same in the epistle to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 is all doctrine, all the riches that we have in Christ. And then right in chapter 4, notice here if you go with me, there is a transition into the practicality of Christian living. He goes on to say, Ephesians 4 verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And so Paul consistently does that in all of his epistles. And by the way, preaching is supposed to do that. And doctrine is supposed to do that. Doctrine prepares us, tells us this is the doctrine, this is the truth. And therefore, this is how doctrine affects our lives. If we know this is the truth, this is what it means for our lives now. Doctrine always precedes practice. This is true even, let's look at one more example. I believe that's not just an Apostle Paul pattern. This is the pattern of Christ Himself. If you remember in Matthew chapter number 5, we have the uh, Sermon on the Mount here, but He begins with the Beatitudes, and we come to those verses in verse 13 and uh, through 16 where He says, Ye are the salt of the earth. He goes on to say, Ye are the light of the world. But notice what precedes that. The Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Understand, he goes on to say, after teaching the Beatitudes, he says, ye are the salt of the earth. What he is saying here is, now, you need to try to be salt. You need to try to be light. No, he says, you are. Why? Because the teaching has been preceded by doctrine. This is the truth, and if you understand the truth, you are light, and you are the salt of the earth. So doctrine, teaching, precedes practice every time. They would be incapable of being salt and light without the foundational teaching of Christ. Doctrine always precedes practice. We must also be aware that false doctrine, or a lack of doctrine, always negatively impacts and affects behavior. For example, if you go with me to what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, as uh, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and we understand the church at Corinth to be a carnal church uh, with known sin that had been, uh, basically that was known in the church and no one did anything to reprove the sin. And notice in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33 what Paul says. He says, Be not deceived, verse 33, evil communications corrupt good manners. You get that? Evil communications corrupt good manners. The warning is clear that once you begin to go astray in your doctrine, you will very soon be going astray in your behavior. You cannot divorce doctrine 
from behavior. This warning is found throughout the epistles. It is most interesting that we find the connection between the two repeated again through the epistles. Let's go, if you turn with me, to 2 Timothy chapter number 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, again, Paul writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, a young man in the ministry, and notice what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And here is the description of those perilous times. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful and holy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive, silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Jannes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall... Proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as there also was. But, and here it is, what separates? But thou hast fully known my, what? Doctrine. Doctrine comes first. And then he says, manner of life. Purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecution, afflictions. He would go on to say, notice in chapter 4, verse 1, I charge thee therefore before God who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Why? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. So we find here that the present condition of society is the result of a rejection of doctrine. It is always the inevitable result of a rejection of doctrine. Paul even said, look, this is going to describe the perilous times. Look at all those behaviors, but you, Timothy, you have known my doctrine and manner of life. You see, this idea today that doctrine has to be set aside and rejected is contrary to the teaching of Scripture. That doctrine cannot be separated from behavior. And so is the pattern of Scripture. And so we understand here why this would be mentioned first as we pull the curtain away and we look inside of what was going on in the New Testament church. The first thing they were involved in was steadfastly continuing in the Apostles' doctrine. Which brings us to the second point, and that is the provenance of the Apostles' doctrine. So where does this doctrine come from? Well, the Bible says here they continued in the apostles doctrine now what does that mean where does this doctrine come from had the apostles gathered together in some upper room somewhere and uh, put up a council together and create some new doctrine is that what happened the word of God gives us a clear answer to this question uh, for example if you uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28 when Jesus Christ gives the great commission you remember what he told them he said this Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And then he said this, teaching them to observe all things 
whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So the apostles were to preach and to teach all the things that Jesus Christ had taught them. And they were to take what Jesus taught and they were to pass it along. So when we think about the apostles' doctrine, let's not think to ourselves that they had to come up with some new thing that was not previously known, but we find that they were simply to communicate what Jesus Christ had taught them. But not only is that, the apostles' doctrine means something else. Not only were they to pass along what they had, had been taught, they were also to communicate doctrine that was not previously known. Now, I believe that's important as we understand the book of Acts to be a transition period. Consider a few examples in Paul's epistles to the churches. If you go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, because by this time in Acts chapter number 2, not all doctrine uh, was known. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Paul here is explaining the resurrection in this chapter. And notice if you go with me down to verse number 51, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Paul says this, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So notice Paul says, I show you a mystery. What he is saying here is I am teaching you something that you did not know before. A doctrine that was not known. I am explaining to you something that was a mystery, something that was hid. And so we say to ourselves here, well, what gave the Apostle Paul to come up with a mystery or to teach this mystery or this doctrine that was not known before? Well, Paul has expressed that. If you go with me to Romans chapter number 12. Turn back to Romans 12, the Apostle Paul, and this is uh, repeated several times in his epistles. In Romans chapter number 12, if you notice with me in verse number 3, he writes to the believers and he says this. Romans 12 verse 3, For I say, now he says, I'm going to speak. I'm going to teach you something. And notice what he says right after that. Through the grace given unto me. You get that? I'm going to say this to you. I'm going to teach you something. But I want you to know that what I am teaching you, what I am telling you, is something that I've received through the grace that was given unto me. To every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another." having then gifts deferring. Here it is. According to the grace that is given unto us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. So you see what the Apostle Paul does here. He's going to uh, talk to them about this idea of being gifts in the church, how we are one body and different members have different responsibilities, and that God in His grace gives those abilities and gives those gifts to each one of the members in the church. But understand this teaching, he says, I'm going to say you and I'm telling you all this through the grace that was given unto me. So the apostles' doctrine, understand, is not what the apostles came up with. Before Christ died, they were to teach all the things that Jesus Christ taught them and continue in that teaching, but then that would be expanded on as Jesus Christ was communicated directly through the Apostle Paul to the New Testament churches. That's the Apostles' doctrine. 
And this was not Paul's revelation. Paul made it clear. This was a mystery. These things that I'm teaching you are the things that I've received from the grace of God. So notice here, the Apostle Peter, and many people have falsely looked at the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. They've equated somehow the Apostle Peter as some Pope who could come up with his own doctrine. And that's why the Roman Catholic Church continued for many centuries after that with the Pope making up whatever he wanted to. Because they thought to themselves that Peter came up with some new doctrine from himself. No, he did not. All the doctrine before the death of Christ or after came from Jesus Christ Himself, whether taught by Christ or communicated by the Spirit of God. And so the apostles were not again forming their own doctrine, they were passing along that which they had first received from the Lord. Now, how do believers begin to go astray? The first, they first refuse to submit to biblical doctrine. They only receive the teaching that suits them or that often appeals to the flesh and say, well, I like this and uh, that seems right to me. But that is not how we ought to uh, approach the Scriptures. And we must never go astray from the Scriptures. And here we see that they were uh, continuing steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine. And so we see not only the priority given to the doctrine, we see the provenance of this doctrine, but thirdly, we see the purpose of the Apostles' doctrine. What, why is doctrine? Why, why do we need doctrine? What is it for? What does it do? If faithfully submitted to, what does doctrine do? What does this body of truth accomplish? Well, I believe there are several things we can identify in God's Word and also in this very book of Acts concerning what doctrine does. First of all, it is meant to preserve true doctrine. You see, the purpose of doctrine is to preserve biblical Christianity. The New Testament Christian cannot be preserved or New Testament Christianity cannot be preserved in a local church unless doctrine is faithfully taught by its leadership, studied by its membership, and passed on to future generations. Remember what Paul told Timothy? He says, The things that thou hast heard of me, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also? And so, Timothy says, What Paul has taught me, Paul says, I should teach men who in turn who these men would teach other men. So that truth is passed. You see, that's the importance of doctrine. The importance of doctrine being known and preached and studied. It is meant to preserve biblical Christianity, but also it is meant to be propagated. As a matter of fact, if you go to Acts chapter number 5, we ask ourselves, well, what did they do? They, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So what happened in Jerusalem? What does the scene look like? What, what happened there with this doctrine? Well, an interesting scene happens. The Apostle Peter and the believers were basically told to be quiet. And notice if you know with me in Acts chapter 5 and verse number 22, but when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keeper standing without, before the door, and when we had opened, we found no man within. Now, when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. <laughs> so they're not in prison. 
They're out and about teaching the people. Notice verse 26. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in, the, in his name, this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So do you see what had happened here? The believers in Acts chapter 2 who were steadfastly continuing in the apostles' doctrine as they were doing that, something happened. This doctrine was being propagated and now Jerusalem, as the high priests are kind of confused, they're upset. Why? Because Jerusalem had been filled with the doctrine. In chapter 8, just previous chapter, you remember as they were told to be silent in Acts chapter 4, verse 8. The Bible says here, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, standing unto them, ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at nod of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. They saw the boldness. They knew that these were unlearned and ignorant men, but yet they heard what these men were saying, and they thought to themselves, these guys have been with Jesus. The teaching that Jesus Christ taught before his death and his re resurrection and ascension, the disciples were teaching the same thing. The same thing is coming out of their mouth. Their same teaching about the person of Christ. We told you not to speak in his name, and yet they were speaking his name, and the knowledge was taken that they had been with Jesus. And so we find here that doctrine is meant to preserve biblical Christianity. Doctrine is meant to be propagated, but also doctrine is meant to prevent false doctrine. In Romans chapter number 16, in verse number 17, the Bible says here, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which we have learned, and avoid them. That they, uh, that they uh, for they are uh, such, serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. Uh, for by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. And so he says here that uh, you have to uh, beware, mark them that cause divisions contrary to what? What is it? Where is it? Uh, in what manner? In what way are they causing division? By doctrine. They come in and they preach a doctrine, they teach a doctrine that is contrary to that doctrine that they have learned. And he said to avoid them. You see, the condition of the church and its failure to know biblical doctrine has greatly affected the behavior and the going astray of churches and believers. 
We ask ourselves when a good Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church often dismantles, and then we ask ourselves when we see these, uh, uh, the people of that church, they go out and they join all kinds of different churches, and it seems to us that they should all be part of the same type of church if they left that church. But they spread around and go to all kinds of different churches that preach different doctrine, and you say, what was the problem? Perhaps, is it possible that that church never preached biblical doctrine in the first place? Or maybe it had the right doctrinal statement, but its members did not have that foundation in their own lives. You see, the purpose of the Apostles' Doctrine, again, is to preserve biblical Christianity, to be propagated and to prevent false doctrine. But also we see, number four, is the positioning under the Apostles' Doctrine. The Bible says, uses the word, and they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. The word continued means that they positioned themselves under the authority of the Apostles' Doctrine. They continued in that which was already there. They did not seek to update it. They did not seek to change it. They sought to, they positioned themselves. They continued in what was already there. Our Lord Jesus Christ was quite clear when He said, I will build my church. You see, the statement demands our submission to His doctrine. This is not our church. It is His church. It is not a church where we say, well, let's come up with 21st century doctrine. Let's update a little bit. No, we submit ourselves to His doctrine. He said, I will build my church. And so when we see here that these men, as we look at what were they doing first, they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. So we see the positioning under the Apostles' Doctrine, but also the passion for the Apostles' Doctrine. The Bible says they were not only continuing in that doctrine, but they were steadfastly continuing in that doctrine. Now, the word steadfastly reveals a passion. Now, think about what had just happened on the scene. These people that were there were people who had previously said, crucify him, crucify him. And when the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he explained what was his message. Jesus of Nazareth. And he said at the end of the message, after he explained who Jesus is, at the end of the message he says, this Jesus whom you have crucified, God hath made him to be both Lord and Christ. So they learned about who Jesus is. What they thought who Jesus was before, they had to change their mind and change their thinking about Jesus Christ. And now think about it, something happened, they, they discovered this truth about who Jesus was. And after they received the word, after they were baptized, after they were added to the church, they're basically running to church and basically they're saying, teach us more. Tell us more about what God's word teaches you. Give us here just a number of verses. There was just a snippet, but we want to know more doctrine. We want to know more from the word of God. Please teach us. They were steadfast in that. It reveals their passion. The word steadfast means to be earnest towards something. It means to be in constant delight of something. It means to adhere closely to something. You see, the passion of the apostles' doctrine was clear. We think about that church, and I think that's where we can ask ourselves. Sometimes I think the struggle for us is not that, oh yeah, well we have the doctrine right, but the question is, are we steadfast in it? 
Is there a passion? Is there an earnestness to know doctrine? And, and by the way, I believe with all my heart, even as a preacher, as we study the Word of God, as we preach the Word of God, we cannot exhaust the depth of the doctrine that is taught in the Scriptures. It is a lifetime study, yea, beyond our life of a study. And so our passion ought to be, there ought to be uh, our giving ourselves to the doctrine that is taught in the Word of God because we know how doctrine affects us. You see, doctrine always gives us a high view of God. And by doing so, it always puts us in the right position with God. You see, a right view of God gives us a right view of everything else. And so, we find here a group of people who are steadfastly continuing in the Apostles' Doctrine. So in continuing, we see their positioning under the Apostles' Doctrine. and the word steadfast, we see their passion for the Apostles' Doctrine. But I want to cover one more thing. That is the product of the Apostles' Doctrine, which I touched at in the beginning. As we dealt with the priority of the Apostles' Doctrine. What is the product of the Apostles' Doctrine? The truth is, there is never, there is never, nor will there ever be, a negative effect upon those who know and understand biblical doctrine. There will never be a negative effect upon those who know and understand biblical doctrine. In other words, what I mean by that is, someone that has an attitude of self-righteousness and pride is never the true outcome of doctrinal understanding. In other words, when someone understands doctrine, they don't say, oh, I got this now, and puts their nose up in the ear. No, doctrine always humbles always brings us to a place of submission. And we ought to always be aware of someone who walks around with their nose up in the air, who has all the answers and who cannot be taught anymore in the Scriptures. You see, our theology will always dictate our conduct. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, the Bible says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Holy. You see, when we come to the doctrine found in the Scriptures, it is important that we receive it as truth, not as we want it to be. And so we come back to this question and ask ourselves this question. Are we like the believers described in Acts chapter 2? These were the people that received the Word, that were baptized, that were added to the church, and then here is what they did. This is what they were involved in. And they continued submission, steadfastly, passion in the Apostles' doctrine. And this doctrine went beyond just them. It uh, was a springboard for New Testament Christianity. It was a protection from false doctrine. And it was propagated. Not just, as we see in Jerusalem, but also around the world. That same doctrine. And so, may the Lord help us as we ask ourselves and examine our own lives and perhaps examine our activity in this church and the activities of this church. Is doctrine emphasized? Is there a passion for doctrine about God's Word, about Jesus Christ, about God? about the Holy Spirit. And the truth is, as we come to this place, really as we come to church and we come to Sunday school, really all those things are not designed to be the end. 
Those are simply designed to be giving a little uh, uh, taste of all the things that can be expanded and discovered in God's Word. It ought to create something in us. A passion to discover more and to study more the depth of the riches and the knowledge of God. And so may the Lord help us to look like first century Christianity and ask ourselves those number of questions. Do we look like the first century church? What did, what did they come together for? What is the Christian church for? What does the church do? What does she provide? Do Christian people come together for... Are we here to, for socials and uh, raffles and dramatic performances? Is that what we're here for? And we see a clear distinction between the church, the New Testament church, and may we be just that distinctive. May our prayer be that we would resemble New Testament Christianity. And may the Lord help us to be such in the 21st century.